The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. The U.S. consumer system is uniquely exploitative. U.S. consumers are exploited by American companies, by French companies, by German companies, by Chinese companies, because there aren't laws protecting consumer data privacy that extend widely across the U.S. consumer ecosystem. The main difference with Chinese companies is that the Chinese government has established an entire framework that pressures Chinese firms to share their data with Chinese government regulators. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. You've probably already noticed the title for today's episode is super long. In case you can't read all of it on your phone, it's called And Cocos on the Intersection Between Surveillance Capitalism and Chinese Sharp Power, or How Much Does the CCP Already Know About You? Some of you probably noticed that I snuck in two pieces of political science jargon near the beginning. Maybe you're already familiar with surveillance, capitalism, and sharp power. For those who know what I'm talking about, Anne's research combines those two ideas in a rather unique way. But for those unfamiliar, let me put it like this. The Chinese government has access to far more data on ordinary Americans than you're probably comfortable with. Anne Kokos is an associate professor of media studies and the C.K. Yen chair at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Her most recent book is Trafficking Data, How China is Winning the Battle for Digital Sovereignty. Anne explains how the relationship between China and the United States in the realm of technology is asymmetric. Like in so many other areas, China operates under a different set of rules from America. So, our conversation explores the implications of this asymmetric relationship and how it affects ordinary Americans. Anne is also the author of a recent paper in the Journal of Democracy that I highly recommend called How Beijing Runs the Show in Hollywood. We actually talk quite a bit about Beijing's influence on Hollywood in this week's bonus episode for supporters at Patreon. I've included a link in the show notes so you can join or you can just look up Democracy Paradox at Patreon.com. But for now, here is my conversation with Ann Kokos. Ann Kokos, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Justin, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So, Anne, what I found remarkable in your recent book, Trafficking Data, was the way that you talked about online games like Fortnite, because I had not thought about those as being almost like social media platforms 
that really were able to accumulate just vast amounts of data on its users. I mean, the way that you portrayed in the book, it, it seems as if an online game like Fortnite has the potential to be able to track even more data than a social media platform like Facebook or Twitter. And maybe I'm being a little extreme in that, but I'd like you to take a moment and just kind of explain what kind of data online games like Fortnite and World of Warcraft and some of those others actually track on their users. So this is a really interesting issue, which we can see emerging even more as a result of the social life that we've kind of grown to experience during the pandemic. So the gaming world has often been a foundational space for new ways of socializing online. And that's really true in the context of games like Fortnite and World of Warcraft, where people have the opportunity not just to have conversations with their friends or spend time with their friends online or chat with their friends, but they actually get to embody new personalities in a new environment. And that connects to a whole range of things self-presentation, so how one develops one's avatar, or the types of tools or weapons that one is able to purchase to perform or to participate in that game. There are also the types of interactions that different online communities have, so different groups of friends who are playing together or you know across different groups. And then now in the pandemic, what we're seeing is these platforms actually being used as steps toward the metaverse with people entering them and attending concerts there. So at the beginning of the pandemic, Travis Scott had a huge concert on Fortnite, which was at that point one of the few places where people could actually attend a concert. And so what's really interesting about the online gaming space is it's a site where people are actually kind of testing out the experience of the metaverse at earlier stages. So we can think about loot or purchasing weapons or purchasing skins or costumes that one might be wearing in a game as something akin to purchasing digital property that people are discussing now in the context of NFTs or digital real estate. But these are things that people have been doing in games for a very long time. So it's this whole scheme of digital property and of digital presentation that's combined with people's real names, their social networks, their credit card numbers, where they spend their time, their IP addresses. And as people grow up, they maintain these relationships on games over long periods of time as well. On a game like Fortnite, where you have a concert like Travis Scott held, what kind of information does a media platform like Fortnite gather about the concert goers? What can it tell about those people? So it knows where they're located, their IP address, where they're spending their time, unless they're using a VPN or a way to conceal that. It knows who they're attending that event with. It knows something about their musical tastes. It can also link that concert attending behavior to other games or other times that they've spent on the game, their financial status, so how much money they're willing to put into their gaming experience. And so these are really, in many ways, social networks that are also linked to procedural gaming practices and how people spend large amounts of time. It also surprised me the way that a game like World of Warcraft or Fortnite, just the people that you interact with on those games actually communicates so much information about yourself. Can you tell us a little bit more about what these platforms learn about us, what these platforms are able to monetize because they know that kind of information about us, about the type of people that we interact with? 
So in many ways, it's very similar to what social media platforms can do. They know who you're connected to, who you spend your time with, what those conversations look like, what money you're willing to spend where, so how much disposable income you have, they know how competitive you are, how much money you're willing to put into that level of competition, because these are frequently premium games, meaning that you can play them for free, but you can also put in a lot of financial resources to advance your position in the game. And there are also sites for building social status. So it's a place where game companies can understand what your social status is relative to your peers in the gaming community. And actually, there is also research that has identified that gaming platforms can also serve as a site for building social status offline as well. So as we're looking at these games, we're looking at social media platforms. Has the federal government in the United States, have state governments, begun to look at any kind of regulations to be able to not monitor, but limit the type of information that these companies are able to gather about us? So this is a really great question, and it's much bigger than issues of gaming. And in many ways, it brings together the questions of U.S.-China relations that I talk about in trafficking data, as well as larger questions of U.S. data privacy issues. So there has been scrutiny of gaming platforms in the U.S. by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, as well as some pressure on gaming companies to limit their exposure to Chinese government regulatory pressure. However, one of the challenges, and this is something I talk about a great deal in the book, is that while there's a huge amount of investment, particularly from the Chinese gaming and tech company Tencent in the U.S. gaming sector, there's not a lot of oversight over what type of data that games gather. And particularly in the case of a game like Fortnite, it's owned by a private company. So within the U.S. industrial system, there's very little information about how private companies do business. So really, we're relying on what that company tells us and how they gather their data and how they share it with other companies, which is a real challenge of the U.S. system. That being said, it's also a reason why a lot of companies want to invest their capital in the U.S. and have private companies in the U.S., In many ways, it's a catch-22 that these industrial regulations that are in place attract capital and in many ways are a vehicle of the growth of the U.S. tech sector, which is also a vehicle of U.S. national power. At the same time, it presents significant strategic risks related to China because Chinese firms can invest in the U.S. tech sector in private companies as well as in publicly traded companies and be able to shape the behavior of firms. And the only thing that consumers can rely on is what those companies tell us. And frankly, their incentive is to get people to keep using the platform. Now, on the other hand, in addition to the concerns about Chinese investment in the tech sector and Chinese government data gathering through Chinese tech firms, because there is a a huge amount of Chinese government pressure on any firms that are located in China, because the Chinese government can engage in data audits of any company that's based in China and their global operations. So this is a huge area of concern. That being said, in the U.S., there aren't equivalent regulations like this. So there are regulations at the state level for consumer data privacy in places like California and Virginia. And there are regulations for specific sectors, like the health sector, or financial data generated in the state of New York. 
But right now, we don't have a national data privacy regulation that protects the type of data that consumers may be sharing with companies as they're playing games like Fortnite or as they're going on social media platforms like Facebook or TikTok or any number of consumer platforms that we might use. So your book obviously touches on a lot more stuff other than just video games. I mean, it touches on the health sector. It touches on the Internet of Things. Definitely touches on social media platforms. What are some unexpected companies that are owned by Chinese companies, like unexpected brands that we might be coming across? Because you've already hinted at the fact that the Chinese government has a lot of influence over Chinese companies in terms of the data that they accumulate and the ability for them to monitor. What are some unexpected brands that we might come across that we don't think of as being Chinese that are today? Well, I think that's a great question. And I just want to really emphasize here that it's not just that Chinese companies are uniquely exploitative as it relates to gathering consumer data. The U.S. consumer system is uniquely exploitative. U.S. consumers are exploited by American companies, by French companies, by German companies, by Chinese companies, because there aren't laws protecting consumer data privacy that extend widely across the U.S. consumer ecosystem. The main difference with Chinese companies is that the Chinese government has established an entire framework that pressures Chinese firms to share their data with Chinese government regulators through national security audits, through extraterritorial control over Chinese firms, through requirements that they store their data in China. So this isn't necessarily about Chinese firms being uniquely exploitative. It's about Chinese firms facing a very, very difficult environment in their home country in order to be able to continue to do business. Now, what I see in a lot of my research is that while there are big companies that we can think of where there's a huge amount of attention being paid to them, TikTok is one great example, WeChat is another great example, Tencent and its investments in the gaming sector are another example. There are also a lot of products that are gathering consumer data in the US that are from Chinese firms that are not really getting as much attention because they're smaller. And this is frequently things in the Internet of Things. So, for example, Eufy, EUFY is a big company in the home security sector. And they gather data about users' exterior and interior home life. And there are multiple cases where they are sending data to Chinese servers. DJI is a major drone manufacturer, which has gained some attention from the U.S. government for its major dominance in the U.S. drone market. But it still is a major supplier of toy drones and commercial drones in the U.S. There are baby monitor companies. There are sex toy companies that are gathering video and sound information from people's homes. And these are small consumer product companies that have very kind of low security standards. They're inexpensive products. And people, frankly, are not looking at what the data security issues are for a lot of their connected home devices because they're just trying to buy something that's inexpensive. This is a really interesting intersection of the kind of U.S. consumer addiction to inexpensive electronics and the major data security risks that we're kind of embedding into our homes. Did you write in the book that GE Appliances has been purchased by a company in China 
the GE divested that segment of their company. Because when I look at something that's from GE Appliances, I mean, to me, that's like American soft power. Is that now owned by a Chinese company? Yes. So that is a, that's a great example. And I'm so glad that you brought it up. And it was such a funny experience how that came to be part of the book. I was traveling to China as part of a delegation of congressional staffers with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And for my first book, Hollywood Made in China, we were visiting a film studio that was in Qingdao, which is a coastal city in the north of China. And we were meeting up with the people in Qingdao and they were like, you know, we really want to take you to this consumer goods company. And everyone on the team was like, well, this film studio was pretty fun. And I don't know what we think about going to the refrigerator manufacturer, but sure. So they took us to Hire, which is really best known in the U.S. for kind of making small dorm refrigerators. That's their big niche. And so we went and, you know, everyone was pretty tired and jet lagged. And then we were going through and I was kind of, you know, I was paying attention, but I was a bit tired and jet lagged as well. And then the person who was leading the tour, it went from these kind of small dorm refrigerators to these, you know, really fancy connected kitchens. And the person who was leading the tour said, well, we no longer consider ourselves a consumer electronics company. We consider ourselves a data company. And I was like, that's really interesting that that this company that was kind of making what we could consider the quintessential dumb appliances has moved into this, you know, very data-driven sector. And then as we were asking them questions about the platform, they were like, oh, well, you know, here we have all these GE consumer appliances that are now owned by Hire and they're running on with the back end of Baidu Uconnect. And Baidu is another major Chinese company. It's kind of considered to be China's equivalent of Google. So they're running the back end and they're doing all the data collection. And then I went home to my house and I <laughs> and I looked at my appliances and I realized that I had a full house of GE consumer appliances. Fortunately, I'm kind of cheap, so they're old and they weren't connected, but they could have been newer if I were fancier. <laughs> so it really can happen very seamlessly without you even knowing, because how many people are really paying attention to who's running the back end of their refrigerator? It's fascinating that they said that they're now a data company rather than consumer electronics company, because that means that they're really not interested in selling you the appliance. They're interested in selling you the appliance that's connected to the Internet of Things. and. As a consumer, a lot of times the Internet of Things seems really silly to me. Like, I don't need to connect my coffee maker to the Internet. I don't need to connect my refrigerator to the Internet in any way, shape, or form. But it comes across to me like in the long term, these companies are going to phase out just those dumb appliances because it's not valuable to them anymore, that they're going to focus exclusively on those. Is that right? I mean, are they doing that even though there isn't necessarily always demand from consumers for some of those products? Yeah, absolutely. Because there's a clear financial incentive. These are very low margin products and gathering consumer data through them offers a really rich potential financial stream that could be very lucrative depending on the type of data that firms are able to gather. And this is the sort of thing where it's interesting to look at it now, and then it's interesting to see how things project out in the next five to 10 years. 
because the idea is to get the appliances in your home and then patch them and enhance the services that are available to you know increase your dependence and increase the type of data that you're sharing with the company. And also for all of you who use your connected devices or have like old, old home appliances and new ones, you realize that the new ones break down a lot more quickly because they're so much more complex. So there's also this planned obsolescence issue where if there's this effort to kind of enhance the connected appliances so that they're ever more complex, then it's an incentive for consumers to try to buy, you know, the next best thing, even though we're not really sure why we even want them. But that's the job of the marketing department. So you already kind of mentioned this, that the whole idea of data extraction, I mean, that's not something that's exclusive to China. And we've been talking about that for years now, really, at least since Shoshana Zuboff wrote her important book on the age of surveillance capitalism. I mean, we've been thinking about how Facebook and how these different companies are extracting data and that we're essentially the product rather than the consumer. But what I found fascinating about your book is that you're connecting this idea of surveillance capitalism and the type of surveillance capitalism that the United States' lack of regulations has allowed to proliferate and linking it back to the idea of Chinese sharp power and the way that it's able to manipulate and control and have influence on markets, on people, on politics. Some of this is potential. Some of this isn't in actuality yet. But there's an interesting line in your book where you write, Chinese government regulations prioritize party control over legal transparency. Can you take a moment and explain what party control means for the tech industry in China? Yeah. So I'm so glad that you brought this up because it means there are many different levels at which this operates. So on one hand, there's been an increased pressure on not just public sector firms, but also private sector firms in China to have party committees within individual companies that kind of serve as a guiding compass for the ethical and philosophical framing of how that company operates. And party committees have grown in importance during the Xi Jinping era, and they appear to be continuing to grow in importance. So that's one area of party control. Then there's also pressure on major leading figures or anyone who really wants to advance professionally in China to become a member of the Chinese Communist Party, which brings entrepreneurs into the Chinese political system in a really significant way and makes them beholden to the political system in a way that entrepreneurs in other countries don't necessarily face that same type of pressure. Then there is also the legal frameworks that the Chinese government has developed as a part of its efforts to enhance control over the tech sector and over the data of Chinese citizens. And that happens through things like the 2017 cybersecurity law, which requires all critical data, all critical infrastructure data to be stored on Chinese government-run servers. And that includes foreign and domestic firms, and it includes private and public sector firms. There is also the 2021 data security law, which requires data audits of Chinese firms to make sure that their data is being used properly and in accordance with the Chinese Cyberspace Administration. And we've seen that this has really significant far-reaching effects that are not necessarily immediately obvious from how that law is written. And one great example is the case of the mobility platform Didi, which was subject to a Chinese a Cyberspace Administration of China National Security Audit. And the rumor is, or some of the discussion around it has been, 
that Didi was reluctant to adhere to the Cyberspace Administration of China's requirements and did their IPO in the New York Stock Exchange even after the Cyberspace Administration of China said that they were not compliant with data security audit. Regardless of the kind of specific turn of events, it's very difficult to know precisely what the data security auditors were saying. But what we do know very clearly is that Didi did their IPO in the New York Stock Exchange, and then almost immediately, the Chinese government removed all Didi apps from the App Store. So clearly, they had run afoul of Chinese regulators in a very meaningful way. And that not only tanked Didi's business, but it also tanked the shares of lots of people from around the world who had purchased its stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. And it affected a lot of other tech companies because People who looked at the influence that the Chinese government had on Didi got concerned about other companies like Alibaba and Tencent and others. And tech sector in China has done horribly in terms of its market capitalization since then. Right, exactly. And this is actually, I think, a really interesting question. And this is one area where I feel like while the Chinese government has been rapidly expanding its impact, and this is something I see in my first book, Hollywood Made in China, as well. There's this perpetual tension between Chinese government efforts to expand their global influence and efforts to control companies in such a way that it actually works against those efforts. And that's a really interesting tension that we see also operating in the tech sector. So I want to be careful not to describe Chinese businesses as good guys. The companies themselves I don't think of as necessarily making like moral choices, but rather making choices that are best for their business. And the fact that Didi didn't want to share their data with China, I think demonstrates the fact that they're concerned about competing internationally. If they're having to have such strong links to the Chinese government and share their data there, does that really put them at a competitive disadvantage against companies from around the world when they try to expand beyond just the Chinese domestic market? It's a really interesting balance. And what we see is that on one hand, Didi, as long as they remain in compliance with Chinese government regulations, they have this captive, huge domestic market, which is a boon for their business and allows them to invest in things like autonomous vehicle technologies and upgrading with an economy of scale that most companies would dream of. So that's one element of it. And then there's the fact that as the Chinese government becomes more activist in their control of Chinese firms, there is definitely a lot more skepticism from countries around the world about Chinese apps and more skepticism and more scrutiny of the type of data that they might be gathering, the possibility of selecting other different apps instead of those Chinese apps. So there is a kind of tension here. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about the DD case is it demonstrates that there is a really clear case for why entrepreneurs may want to be able to raise capital and exit their firms and exit their dependence on the Chinese market. And that is a real potential challenge for the Chinese government. Well, even American companies, I mean, for a long time, people said the same thing about the United States, that there's this enormous domestic market. Why does it matter if they compete internationally? And the American population has continued to grow, yet 
it's pretty much just understood that if you want to get the kind of dynamic growth that these companies are pursuing, that you have to go global. So even if the Chinese market continues to offer opportunities for growth as more and more people go online, I would just imagine that these companies are going to eventually hit a point where they need to be able to expand internationally to be able to continue to grow. I mean, the Chinese market, as large as it is, is still finite. And if you can't go internationally, you're not going to be able to grow beyond that market. So this, I think, is a great point. And one of the things I think is important to recognize is that Chinese firms aren't necessarily always trying to grow in the U.S. or in Europe. So, for example, Southeast Asia is a really robust and rapidly growing market. And there aren't robust data security regulations in Southeast Asia, nor in a lot of cases is there a lot of pushback against Chinese investment. Or if there is, there is an equal amount of pushback against American investment. And countries like Indonesia or countries like Thailand are eager for capital investment and eager for infrastructure and are interested in who is willing to put capital there. And we've seen that, you know, with China's Belt and Road Initiative, while there have definitely been stumbles, there are also a lot of countries that have been very willing to bring on Chinese capital. And frankly, Chinese state capital through the Belt and Road Initiative is um, something that draws much more scrutiny than private tech investment from Chinese firms. So when we think about China's influence globally, especially when we think about the Belt and Road Initiative, one of the things that they've done is try to build infrastructure not just in terms of physical infrastructure, but also in terms of data infrastructure. They've been exporting artificial intelligence technology to a lot of developing countries in places like Africa, the Middle East. I would imagine that the type of data regulations that China is imposing on these companies is also being exported. Because when a major economy places regulations on its companies, oftentimes smaller economies follow suit. Are we seeing a lot of that happening? And if so, is the United States losing an opportunity to kind of set the standard for tech regulations by its lack of taking the initiative to be able to establish some of those regulations? Yeah, so I think this becomes a really interesting question, particularly as it relates to establishing connected municipal infrastructure, so connected cities and security infrastructure. So there's a scholar named Sheena Greetens who does really great work on global tech security and China's influence there. So those are really interesting areas where there hasn't been much uptake in the United States. So in trafficking data, I talk more about the types of firms that are gathering data in the U.S. market. But in areas like security and municipal infrastructure, we're seeing places like in Latin America and Africa, in the Middle East, there's a, a much higher uptake of that type of infrastructure from Chinese firms. And it's shaping practices of governance there. It's shaping practices of municipal management. So this becomes a really interesting question of the types of influence that the Chinese government is able to exert through Chinese firms. Well, it's fascinating to me that the United States hasn't taken more of a lead on tech regulation itself, because its failure to be able to regulate the tech industry and to prioritize growth over good governance seems to leave a blind spot where it's ceding that power to other actors, whether it be the European Union, whether it be China, whether it be other major economies like maybe Japan, South Korea, others. 
I mean, are we seeing a development of an international regulatory framework for some of the technology for data collection that really leaves input from the United States out? Yeah, this is a great point. And we're definitely seeing that. For example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership had a data governance framework that was embedded within it. And when the U.S. left, there was a group of countries that were involved in the Trans-Pacific Partnership that spun off what's now called the CPTPP and are engaging in that type of transnational data governance themselves. And both Taiwan and the People's Republic of China have requested to enter the CPTPP, and the U.S. is still not a member. So we'll see how that all plays out. And then, of course, there are data protection regulations in Japan and Korea, the European Union, general data protection regulation. So it's really interesting because we're seeing a lot of our major democratic trade partners develop really robust data governance frameworks, and the U.S. is not. Now, part of the kind of historical influence of the U.S. in tech regulation has been through the development of something called a multi-stakeholder system, where U.S. companies, through the lobbying of the U.S. government, have been able to take a major role in establishing global tech standards through different multi-stakeholder organizations. So an organization like the United Nations would be a multilateral organization that focuses on different countries. But the U.S. has been able to, in some ways, historically stack the deck in its favor by having these really strong tech companies that speak out in multi-stakeholder organizations to establish new tech standards and use the interests of the United States through U.S. companies. Now, a key difference that we're seeing now is that U.S. companies aren't only interested in the U.S. market. So these multi-stakeholder systems don't necessarily effectively represent U.S. national interests. They represent the interests of transnational tech corporations. So one of the things that fascinated me in the book was you actually mentioned some of the states that have developed more robust data protection, more robust privacy laws. And it was interesting to me because it's obviously not based on partisan ideology or it's not based on whether or not the Republicans or the Democrats control the state. It's got much more to do with whether or not the state has extensive interests and extensive experience with the tech industry itself. States like California and Texas both have some kind of laws about data privacy. And it's fascinating for two reasons. I mean, one is that both Republicans and Democrats have been able to get on board on this, except not in something that's coherent at the federal level. And at the same time, it's the states that have the largest tech industries that have actually put on the most innovative data privacy laws, states like California, Texas, whereas other states like, I don't know, Indiana, Ohio, some of those other states that don't have those sophisticated tech industries still lack those data privacy laws. Is this a partisan issue that I just don't realize? Is this something that cuts across partisan lines? What's really holding the United States back from developing some of these laws? So this is a great question. And with respect to why certain states develop these laws and certain states don't, I mean, some of it has to do with who's in charge and how they think about these different leadership questions. A lot of it also has to do with talent. So one thing I always joke about, so I I lived in Arlington County for a little while, which is right outside of DC. And Arlington County was filled with people who loved working in government. And it's basically a town full of like former student council presidents. 
And so we were the best governed county I've ever lived in in my entire life. And I think in many ways, when you look at places like California, there's a huge tech sector. And even people who aren't in the tech sector are living in Sacramento and are at the doorstep of the tech sector. So it's a much more immediate question than it would be in a place like Indiana or Iowa, where there isn't this kind of immersion in these issues and this deep well of talent of people who are able to make policy in these areas. So I think that's one side of it. So in places like California and Texas and Illinois and New York, we see that there are these really robust industries that there is a kind of need to govern. And there's also talent in the legislature to be able to address a lot of these issues. Now, with respect to the partisanship of questions of data privacy, it's quite interesting, actually, because there is a bipartisan interest in protecting user data. And we see that by how far something like the American Data Privacy and Protection Act has gotten in Congress. There's also partisan conflict. So in tech sector regulation, we see on the Republican side, this kind of question of free speech on tech platforms is a big issue. And on the Democratic side, questions of privacy are a much bigger issue. But we also see that data privacy and free speech can fall along partisan lines as they relate to specific issues. So for example, post and pre-Dobbs decision as it relates to abortion rights in the United States, the question of privacy had a very different valence. So pre-Dobbs, you know, it was, it was possible to talk about it without discussing things like the data privacy of period tracker apps or other technical tools that might document when a woman was getting an abortion. Post-Dobbs, it's impossible to have those conversations. So in some ways, I think that the data privacy conversation and the data security conversation gets mapped onto other tense political debates, which makes it very difficult to talk about just consumer data by itself. So to kind of wrap up, I want to bring this back to the heart of what your book and the heart of the argument that you've been making is, which is that the lax regulation, just the surveillance capitalism that has proliferated in the United States has created an abundance of data that's really, really an asset for companies. But that has meant that as Chinese investment comes into the American tech sector, and as Chinese companies begin to introduce their products into the American market, it means that our data is being shared with Chinese companies that are oftentimes housing their data in China that opens up the door for the Chinese government to have access to data and information about us. What is your greatest fear about Chinese access to this type of information and to this data? What are you most worried about with them having access to this information? So I think that the risks break down into three key areas. So there's the first one that is most immediately obvious to us, which is just the surveillance of individuals. And this is the one that feels the most creepy and the most immediate, where you know we're concerned that Chinese government surveillance will extend to individuals in the, in the United States. And that is obviously not desirable. But most people, frankly, are not really interesting surveillance targets. It takes a lot of work to drill down to get that information about an individual and to track them. So it's obviously something that is a concern. But I think that there are two other risks that I see as being more profound and more transformative. 
And these are the risks which are more difficult to perceive and they occur over a longer period of time. So the second risk is economic competitiveness. So the Chinese government or Chinese firms are currently dominant in the Chinese market, but if they're able to become dominant globally, then they'll be able to develop more robust algorithms, better products, and enhance their global dominance as platforms. And that has a direct impact on U.S. economic competitiveness globally. So U.S. tech firms, for the most part, cannot operate within the Chinese markets. There's this asymmetry which prevents U.S. firms from developing the same type of rich algorithms that Chinese firms can develop if they're able to also access the U.S. and other global markets. So that, I think, is a really significant long-term risk. Then there are national security considerations that are connected to Chinese tech investment in the U.S. and in other countries, and specifically the influence that the Chinese government can have on Chinese tech firms. So in this case, I'm thinking about sectors like precision agriculture, like precision medicine, like critical communications. And in these cases, when we see Chinese government influence on Chinese firms, it's very possible to see national security risks as they are associated with a dependence on Chinese firms in sectors like agriculture or health or critical communications. And I think that this is a kind of longer term national security concern, also in areas like space and satellite development. So these are the kind of bigger, longer term questions that I think about in a kind of more profound and longer term issue. And the way that I think about this And one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is it's very similar to issues of climate change, where there are small changes that occur over time that shift how we do things and that shift the overall security of the infrastructure that we use to live. And the tipping point happens before you really know it. So I just want people who read the book and people who listen to your podcast to go into this with open eyes and to realize that when they're sharing their data with a firm that depends on the Chinese government for its very existence, they are contributing to those concerns about long-term economic and national security competition. You know, I think it's also not just the idea of them tracking any one person, but tracking larger sociological demographics, if you will, where they can kind of understand on a big picture how people might feel about certain things or what people's concerns are or what people's worries are. And after dealing with the influence of Russia in the 2016 election, I mean, if China has immense amounts of data on individuals through so many different sources, I would just think that that would give them tremendous opportunity to be able to influence elections in the United States or elections in Taiwan or anywhere else in the world that they have that data and that information. And Imagine if they were going to go to war with a country. I mean, they've got information on what people might be afraid of, what might scare people more than other things, and what might affect different demographic groups in very specific places. I mean, I think it just opens up a whole can of worms that just changes how we think about national security completely. No, I completely agree with you. And it's not really a hypothetical, to be perfectly honest, because we've already seen that TikTok has limited the types of ways that people can talk about the war in Ukraine on the platform, particularly in accounts in Eastern Europe. So this is a reality. And TikTok is a company whose parent company is ByteDance, which is headquartered in Beijing. And we're already seeing how that plays out in one global conflict. And I don't necessarily want to see how it plays out in more. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And this is such an important topic. And I'm so glad that you've taken the time to do the research. And thank you so much for writing your book. Once again, it's called Trafficking Data, How China is Winning the Battle for Digital Sovereignty. Thank you. Thank you so much, Justin. It's been a pleasure. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.